The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Sad Eagle Edition. It's Wednesday, November 2nd, 2016. On today's show, Designated Survivor is Guilty Pleasure TV. It's a new thriller from ABC in which Kiefer Sutherland is a sort of average Joe. He's a low-level cabinet secretary who becomes president after the entire line of succession ahead of him gets wiped out in a terrorist attack. And then the 13th is a riveting documentary about the rise of the prison industrial complex and its targeting of young black males, often for nothing more than profit. We're joined by Slate's own Aisha Harris. And finally, Vine. It was the micro video. It is, I guess, still the micro video service owned by Twitter. It's going away. And this has led to dozens of heartfelt elegies. Why did such a seemingly modest thing come to symbolize the internet at its best? We discuss with Slate's tech critic, Will Oremus. All right. Joining me today is Slate's uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm very sick. Oh. So I'm going to do my one segment where we don't have a guest, and then I'm going to let the guests sub in for me for our show today. Sorry to beg off. And of course, I'm joined by Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. I feel like is Vine one of the first tech services that we've, uh, that we reviewed when it dawned, and now we, now we must bury it? I guess, I don't know if chat roulette still exists, but... <laughs> Chat roulette. Oh my God, those were the days. But I don't you remember we made we made little vines. We did we vined for a yep. bit. And I, I guess my account is among the ones that are going to be living on there forever because I never went and took it down again. Yeah, I made one super creepy vine of a of a baby snow globe. That was my one. That was my one contribution to vine art. I don't think it will go down in the history books. Julia, do we have some business to attend to before we dig in? Yeah, just one bit of business today, which is that in our Slate Plus segment, we will talk about the immortal question. Adults and Halloween, should they get dressed up for it? By the time you listen to this, Halloween may be fading away, but probably the Instagrams of people's costumes or lacks thereof uh, may still be circulating on your feeds. So we will discuss whether we are dressers up or nay and why. Uh, you can listen to that after our show if you're a member of Slate Plus. If you're not, you can join at slate.com slash culture plus. And for a limited time, we have a discount going. You can sign up for an annual membership at a discounted rate. Uh, of only $35 for the first year. Go to slate.com slash culture plus for that offer. All right, Steve, let's commence. Designated Survivor is a post 9-11 high anxiety pot boiler from ABC television. It stars Kiefer Sutherland as a low level cabinet secretary. He's the secretary for HUD, poor HUD. Um, he's about to get fired, um, but they throw him a little sop. He gets to be the designated survivor for the State of the Union uh, dress and this being network TV. Guess what happens? The State of the Union speech gets blown up. The line of succession is wiped out and Kiefer Sutherland becomes president. Uh, the show is created by David Guggenheim, a veteran thriller hand, and it also stars Natasha McElhone as his, uh, Kiefer's wife and sudden first lady. Why don't we listen to a clip? Mr. President, the UN is in emergency session. I have a three-page phone list with every one of our enemies calling to deny responsibility for the attack. All U.S. military bases are on full alert, and the USS Eisenhower is currently hard-charging towards the Fifth Fleet, stationed in the Persian Gulf. I understand alerting our bases, but why are we hard-charging a U.S. aircraft carrier anywhere? Mr. President, in the event of an attack... An attack from who? You just said all our enemies are denying responsibility. Because all warfare is based on deception and there's still plenty we haven't heard from. I just don't feel comfortable showing that kind of force yet. Oh, with all due respect, sir, would you mind telling us when you do plan on being comfortable? You'll be the first to know, General. 
Excuse me. Julia, let me start with you. This is uh, pretty pulpy, but kind of fun. Is it? Um, is it giving you pleasure, guilty or otherwise? Oh my god, what a bad show! But I did gobble up three episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the most interesting thing to think about here is the evolution of the political thriller. More than ten years after Twenty Four, that was a show that assumed enemies everywhere and asked you to have faith in the hyper competence of Jack Bauer, the one man who would fight all our foes who would torture whoever needed to be torture, who would extract information from whence it needed extraction uh, and like save the president's blonde daughter at just the right moment. Forgive me if I'm muddling the details, but that's my recollection of that show. Um, And in this, we have a fantasy of uh, like a totally decimated government that doesn't work at all, which some people might argue that our government is already in that state, even though it is intact um, or that it may soon be it in that state, depending on who wins the election next week. It's actually takes, you know, it's, it's sort of a truism in Washington that Veep is the most accurate of the DC shows, that it's about like small incompetent people making small localized decisions and their foibles add up to our government. And this show strikes me as one that kind of takes that idea that everybody at the core of government is all too human and then puts that at the center of a thriller rather than a comedy. Dana, what did uh, what did you make of this? Yeah, I think I mean I, I agree with Julia. This show can't really be graded according to any standard of of quality as a great show, but boy, does it speak to the anxieties of our moment. I think I mean just the idea of having Jack Bauer become the anti Jack Bauer, as you say, this kind this guy who's quavering, afraid to use force. Quavering is too dismissive of, of a word. I think that the viewer is really sort of put on the side of of Kiefer Sutherland's character here, the the suddenly president despite himself, and it really does make you feel the intense pressures of being just a, a lowly human suddenly elevated to this this position of power. And in a way, that's the only emotional gambit the show has going for it that, that particularly works. But I think it works well enough that just being shoved by proxy into that position and thinking, oh, my God, what would I do if it mm-hmm. was me with these these decisions being thrust onto me? That, that power alone carried the show a pretty long way. Would you hard right. charge the Fifth Fleet? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not comfortable with that yet, Julia. Dana, let us know. <laughs> Um, I yeah, I think it. I think the show is is ridiculously effective. Um, I think it plays on um, sometimes cunningly and sometimes maybe cynically on on uh, two um, anxieties. One obvious and one somewhat less so. The obvious one is, of course, the frayed nerves of post nine eleven America. I I don't like uh, entertainment product that does that. I think it's just finally too manipulative, and it plays into really simplistic narratives um, uh, about that event. Um, and its place in recent American history. Uh, and also, I just think um, if we are genuinely traumatized, as I think we are as a, as a country, by that event, we ought to work through the trauma in, in different ways, maybe. But um, that's just me. Um, nonetheless, I do think it, 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 it is very, very cunningly put together um, uh, in the ways that it plays on the second, somewhat less obvious anxiety, um, which is, are we up to the task of self-government, right? I mean, that inherent modesty of the, original idea, I mean, both hubris and modesty of the original idea of the American experiment, which is that ordinary people uh, are perfectly capable without kings and uh, hereditary nobles um, and arbitrary authority from on high, or even really the the, um, approval of God, are capable of ruling themselves. And um, we're obviously at a huge uh, turning point, crossroads in American history, and the question of of, um, whether we're really um, capable of it, the, the really intense 
moments um, that grabbed me were of this guy who's basically a housing you know nerd um, by a fluke accident becoming president, and he's wearing a Cornell hoodie. And he's just meant to look like a guy in a pair of New Balances. I mean, he's a dad. He's meant to be a real stand-in for the viewer, for the male viewer. And his wife is meant to be a stand-in for the, you know, kind of yuppie female viewer. And can they helm this now massive apparatus of the American superstate, um, which polices the globe, governs a continent, and essentially, in a, in a way, a global economy? And what is it about the kind of ordinariness of self-governance as framers conceived it hundreds of years ago when everyone was a farmer or a merchant in a you know in a very modest uh, way how do you apply that to this technologically super advanced um uh super state that we've created i think that's a great setup um but i don't know that i'll follow this show for very much longer <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for one thing, I mean, it's fun to see Jack Bauer in like nerdy glasses getting told to take his glasses off before the teleprompter clicks on for his national address. Uh, it's fun to see him in like schlub role mode. But the show, as it gets a few episodes in, seems like it's setting itself up to be more Scandal in 24 than Veep or Dave. Isn't Dave the movie about a schlub becoming president? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's it's not really going to situate itself in that comedy mode for long. It becomes clear that there's all kinds of, you know, skullduggery and daring do around the edges and that the show will live more in the world of, um, you know, cloak and dagger operatives and their secret plots. And I bet that Kiefer gets up to it pretty soon and finds his own inner commander in chief uh, rather than continuing to just be like, oh, man, this job, what the hell? I think another thing that the show could do much, much better is 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 exploring how bizarre it would be to have all, essentially all three branches of the government wiped out at once. I mean, at, at times the, the days that Kiefer Sutherland's president seems to be living are almost too normal for someone in those circumstances. I mean, in the moments that we, we do see Kiefer Sutherland outside near the site of the attack, there is essentially a smoking ruin of what was once the Capitol. So the entire Supreme Court has been taken out. All of Congress, except as far as we know at the beginning of the show, one member of Congress played by Virginia Madsen has been wiped out. And so the idea that he would even be building a government from scratch seems like the most I would like to go down those wonky roads and sort of see, like, what does the line of succession allow for? What are his powers as, as this newly empowered president? How is he going to get the three branches of government up and running? Again? Right. And a couple of the power struggles in the early episodes do play with that in interesting ways. Like there's one moment where one of his aides talks about how they'll never get one of their you know, potential attorney generals past the hill. And then the guy she's talking to is like, uh, there is no hill. Right. There's just a pile of <laughs> there's like rubble. nobody who has to approve this anymore. Um and then there's another interesting power struggle with a governor. There's a the governor of one of the states is like, I don't recognize your authority. And it kind of thrusts you into the the some of the founding battles of our country about the the tensions between state and federal authority and who is really the boss of whom um, and the things that we take for granted about how that works suddenly become undone in this world. But yeah, I think this show would only be worth watching if it was, to me, if it lived more in kind of alternate future wonk country and was really about our democratic institutions in some way and the way we think about power and governance but i think it's basically just like a they plan to use it more it's just a great setup for 
a nighttime thriller soap. And we haven't even mentioned the lowest rung of subplots, which is the family having to care about the family of the president, which just feels like the most generic TV series oh, yeah, ever. His adolescent son who's dealing drugs. Oh, and- God. Yeah. And then they've got the like poor man's Kieran and Shipka. They've got this like little um, sweet little girl, Penny, I think is her name. Um, whose whole job whole job is to fling her arms around her father's neck and look vulnerable. Yeah. Peanut, and, yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like both of you are pining for this to have been in um, HBO or Showtime or Netflix, uh, you know, gourmet TV offering, um, which would have eliminated or, or downplayed or made interesting the family drama and upplayed the constitutional crisis for um, discerning viewers like us. But, I mean, it raises the question... As I watched this, it made me realize I hadn't really lost myself in a network TV show in in a really long time. And it's the whole idea of guilty pleasure TV seemed attached to me in some ways to channel surfing and sort of snagging on something barely better than the average uh, thing on offer, show on offer, and then kind of losing yourself in it and then become guiltily pleasured by it and becoming an addict and then watching it for six years, that seems to me sort of gone now, right? I mean, now that everything is so sophisticated and so good, who has time really for a TV show that's slightly better than the junk surrounding it? Yeah, I mean, I'd push back on that a little bit. There are a few shows that sort of cross over between great network schlock and prestige TV slash, you know, uh, compelling snackable uh, joint digital second screen experience watching TV like Scandal, which I was up on until recently. But I don't think this show, and 24, right? It was one of the originals at the dawn of prestige TV. It was a Fox thriller that the, you know, TV chattering classes enjoyed chattering about before the whole cornucopia of goods was on display that we have now. But just the the potentially interesting things in this idea, which are the alternate wonkery of a destroyed Washington and, and theories of governance and the emotional pathos of uh, a man unexpectedly being thrust into this situation don't strike me as the emotional or story terrain that network TV is best at. Yeah, I, I, I essentially agree with that. The show is Designated Survivor. It stars Kiefer Sutherland. It's on ABC. If someone uh, vociferously agrees or disagrees with us, come to facebook.com slash culture fest and tell us about it all right julia reprieve go to bed hot tea thank a you little whiskey. thank you for indulging my key for a chat with this absurdly gravelly voice oh uh, thanks for coming in and talking to us all right well moving on 13th is the new documentary by filmmaker ava duvernay it lays out with icily passionate clarity uh the history of the prison industrial complex the now vast system of mass incarceration that overwhelmingly targets young black men often for profit but this extraordinary documentary does more than shock us with statistics and they are shocking enough but also with with history more precisely the historical continuity between the mass incarceration of black men now and slavery and Jim Crow. Joining us to discuss 13th is late contributor and host of the podcast, Represent Aisha Harris. Aisha, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. All right, before we dig in, why don't we listen to a clip? We should just set this up maybe a little bit first. What you're going to hear is the voice of two or three academics who were interviewed by DuVernay over the course of the film, and they're talking about the rise of Jim Crow in the post-war years in the South. One of the things that people have to bear in mind is that when we think about slavery, it was an economic system. And The demise of slavery at the end of the Civil War uh, left the Southern economy in tatters. Uh, And so this presented a big question. There are four million people who were formerly property, and they were formerly kind of the integral part of the economic production system in the South. 
And now those people are free. And so what do you do with these people? How do you rebuild your economy? The 13th Amendment loophole was immediately exploited. After the Civil War, African Americans were arrested in mass. It was our nation's first prison boom. You were basically a slave again. The 13th Amendment says that, hey, except for criminals, everybody else is free. Well, now if you're criminalized, that doesn't apply to you. Let's start with the title. Uh, there is, and I didn't know this, I'm ashamed to say, going in, a kind of asterisk to the 13th Amendment. Yes. Um, the the premise of the, the, the movie is that the 13th Amendment, which was supposed to uh, free black American slaves from, from bondage, um, that loophole, that asterisk that you mentioned, they call it the criminality clause. And essentially what it means is that slavery itself is is outlawed with the exception of punishment for a crime. And so this allowed, essentially allowed black people to remain in many ways enslaved, um, both figuratively and literally, uh, even after the idea of selling and buying slaves was no longer technically legal. And that that's in some ways the principal force of the documentary, right, is establishing this historical continuity using the theme of the criminalization of essentially being young, black, and male, uh, principally black and male, but often young, black, and male, and takes us through the various ways in which the asterisk has iterated itself out to new forms of slavery or segregation or rank exploitation. Talk a little bit about that history. It's it's interesting the way the film sets this up because it talks about the the way in which before slavery was abolished, Black people were considered, you know, pretty docile and willing to follow orders and, and easy to tame. And Jelani Cobb, who is one of the talking heads, he's a contributing writer to The New Yorker and also a professor of history at UConn. He talks in depth about Birth of a Nation and how that sort of helped um, in the aftermath of, you know, in the midst of Jim Crow, how images like that of of Black men being you know, rapists and 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 ravishing and and dangerous. How that sort of contributed to the criminality, the 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 idea of the black male as a a threat and a fear, and how that continues to this day to to haunt America and and um, specifically contributes to the way in which we look at black men, especially, but black women as well, but black men in uh, in a threatening and dangerous light. Yeah, even though we just talked about Birth of a Nation, the D.W. Griffith Birth of a Nation a few weeks ago on this show, something that Jelani Cobb said was something I had never realized, which is that cross-burning was essentially invented by D.W. Griffith, that that was not even a feature of KKK raids until it was seen on the big screen. And, you know, when there was sort of this upsurgence and interest in the KKK, that became the symbol. And I should, you know, to bring in contemporary events, Donald Trump repeatedly uh, identifies himself as the quote-unquote law and order candidate. This is not new language at all, is it? No, I mean, one of the things that the film does really well is it it sort of <laughs> indicts pretty much every president of the last 40-plus years in the way in which they've used, I mean, with the exception to some extent of Obama, but Obama's still um, included in a little bit in here too. But the the ways in which they use the idea of law and order to um, appease the public and how they campaigned on these things. So you have Nixon uh, in in the late sixties and early seventies, you know, talking about 
it's pretty much the same sort of ideas that that Trump is and and the way in which Reagan's policies um especially with the crack epidemic helped to you know promote this idea of I'm like drugs are bad um and and most of the people who are doing these drugs and who are selling these drugs are people in inner cities code for black um and while they didn't always use the explicit language of it being black people you you knew what they were talking about and so the film does a really good job of sort of digging into all of the ways in which these presidents have have campaigned on this and how in the past the public really wanted this, including black Americans. Well, Aisha, that that raises the interesting question of uh, the Southern strategy, the so-called method by which the Republican Party systematically attempted to switch the solid South from solidly Democratic to solidly Republican by by essentially race baiting. Um, a key figure in that was the political consultant Lee Atwater. He committed to all of eternity the confession of what the Southern strategy was actually made of. Why don't we listen to that clip? There's really no understanding of our American political culture without race at the center of it. And in 1981, just before Reagan assumed the presidency, his campaign strategist Lee Atwater was caught on tape explaining the Southern strategy. In other words, you start out in and now y'all are quoting me. It's hard. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. Well, Aisha, nothing about that clip has lost its power to utterly shock us. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think that it's it it proves to me not that I needed the proof, but I think it proves just how um, calculating all of all of this was in terms of how to make out um, the black urban population to be this this scary mass, and and how easy it was for them to play into. Um, the public's fears with regard to that. Dana, one of the most powerful things about the documentary was, you know, out of this history of law and order candidates in the Republican Party is built a grotesque symbiosis between right-wing politicians, for-profit prison industry, and mediating them is an organization called ALEC. What do you know about ALEC? Well, I didn't know anything about Alec until watching this documentary. And I think for me, that was probably one of the big factual revelations. I mean, a lot of these stories are stories that if you have read anything about the history of civil rights, you're familiar, right? The story of Emmett Till comes up. And also a lot of recent stories right up to Sandra Bland and, and Eric Garner are talked about toward the end. But this Alec was something I knew nothing about. It's, a, it's an acronym for American Legislative Exchange Council. And it seems essentially to be a kind of private club that you can join as a either a, a, a corporate a representative of a corporation or of the government that in itself is kind of alarming where they sort of produce it's like a legislation farm they produce all kinds of legislation most of it sort of helping to grow the prison industrial complex and then just circulate it around to different state legislatures with essentially an empty place to put your state's name and and thereby you know propagating this kind of growth industry prison legislation 
So, I mean, th- this is one of those glimpse behind the scenes, the how the sausage of law gets made moments that I think sets the documentary apart and really does make you make you see a, a horrifying part of the puzzle that hadn't been there before and makes you understand why this counter that Ava DuVernay keeps going back to showing almost like a, you know, a, um, a cash register type type counter that's counting up the prison population, why those numbers just keep on mounting so terrifyingly high from something like, I think, 700,000 incarcerated people in 1970 or whenever she starts to something like two and a half million today. So I'm wondering, we've talked a lot about the content of this show, but not at all about the form. What did you guys think of the way that this, this information is all presented and, and laid out by DuVernay? Did you did you find it effective or what what, what did you think fell down sometimes in the presentation? It, it, this movie is a testament to the power of imagery and, and, and she uses the cinematic voice in a way that I think is really captivating and that no sort of article about police and the police industrial complex can do by itself, especially the montage towards the end where she has Trump's uh, words. Uh, I don't remember what he, he was exactly what he's saying, but he was saying something along the lines of like, we, you know, his typical, we need to make America great, great again. We need to go back to the times when things were better. And you see this juxtapose um, <clears throat> overlaid with images of uh, going back and forth between Trump supporters kicking people at rallies, specifically black people and punching them, and then imagery, cutting to imagery to um, of black people in the early 20th century getting beaten and kicked while trying to protest. So to me, that was like a really, that made this movie go above and beyond for me, like the her use of imagery and her use of the, the content, the compare and contrast to how far, how far we haven't come since then. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. she commands her archival clips extremely well, and I wish there'd been even a little bit more of that because montage was one of the strong points in bringing the, the present and the past together in that way. In some other ways, though, this this felt to me like a very standard agitprop-style documentary in terms of going from one talking head to the next and then some illustration of what that talking head said. I mean, I, I, her point here was not to do formal invention, but the moments that she did try to to slightly displace that very familiar talking head format to me were just distracting. For example, did you guys notice that she never filmed any of her subjects head on? There was just a lot of tricky camera movement yeah. around talking heads, which doesn't really change the fact that it's a talking head. Right. Yeah. There's also this kind of um, what I think of as the, the the Bob Dylan, you know, the famous famous Bob Dylan video where he's throwing down cards, right, flash cards with some of the words of the song. The subterranean. Subterranean homesick, homesick blues. blues yeah. Exactly. So she's got a little bit of that going on where sometimes as, as a, a quote is being read or someone speaking sort of the key words of what they're saying are splashed up on the screen in big print. And to me, personally, I feel condescended to by that kind of kind of narrative manipulation of a documentary. It seemed very influenced by Vox in some ways. Like it presumed very little prior knowledge on the part of the viewer, which I think could be quite helpful. Um, And then it made sure to tie up as much of the narrative in statistics, which are quite powerful. I mean, one in three black men spend time in prison over the course of their lifetime and preposterous numbers. Um, And it drives home the case. And the case is, I think it's important to maybe separate out the, the, the raw power of the case being made against American society for inherently criminal criminalizing, essentially being black and male. Right. And the power of that is, is, overwhelming and when you get that story told um in a fairly direct way it it gives it a fresh immediacy especially as you say that extraordinary sequence where trump is making a speech and sort of boasting about how in the old days you know 
essentially, if someone protested a rally, they had the shit kicked out of them, how wonderful that was, and to show actual archival footage from the 60s of, you know, protesters having the shit beat out of them, you know, just brings home what, what, what it is this candidacy represents. But, um, but th- the movie is not otherwise inherently powerful. Other than that sequence and a couple of others, it's very informa- informationally based. But I thought that was fine. I think that that bringing it all together and providing the synthetic legwork of um, and and by by doing the synthetic legwork, showing this historical continuity that essentially, thanks to the crim- criminality clause of the Thirteenth Amendment, once you're convicted of a crime, you're effectively a slave of the state. I mean, you're certainly. Uh, a victim of a quote-unquote new Jim Crow, but I mean, you can you can make the the extreme argument that you're effectively a slave of the state. That loophole in the Constitution and how it's been manipulated to keep continuity for young black males between their experiences now and their experiences 200 years ago. That to me is 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 so intrinsically powerful. It didn't bother me that the that the mode of presentation was sometimes a little. Um, Utilitarian or something. Utilitarian, great. Yeah, exactly that. Aisha, let me ask, did, in watching this, did you learn or feel anything new? I definitely felt, uh, I definitely felt more dread. Um, it's, it, yeah, it, it was just, I, I think that I came away from it, and I, and I think the point of the movie was to sort of inspire people to get enraged and get upset about it. And, I did get up. I I've, I have to admit, I was crying by the end of it. I did not realize I was going to. Um, I, I think part of it was that she does end uh, with imagery, and and this is something that was very deliberate. She ends ends on imagery of recent shootings and police shootings, and including I think um, we have Eric Garner, which was caught on video. All these shootings and 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 killings that we've seen many times over um and then below it or below each image she says you know use with permission from their family and she said in interviews that she was only using footage of of deaths that she got direct permission from the families for even though she didn't need to which i think was really uh, just i don't know touching i don't know if that's the word but it's i think it was a very smart move on her part and a in a caring move and shows sort of what her goal was with the film um so I was, yeah, I was kind of a, I was a appalling mess at the end of it. So I definitely, I definitely felt I, I was affected by it, but these feelings weren't new. They were just kind of brought to the service again for the umpteenth time. All right. Well, the movie is called 13th. It's streaming on Netflix. You should absolutely watch it. Um, let us know what you think of it at facebook.com slash culture fest. Aisha, thank you so much for coming in and, and talking uh, with us about the film. Thanks again. Twitter has announced that it is shuttering Vine, the service that allows you to upload six-second videos. Little did I know until this was announced. Um, many people consider Vine to be an artistic medium and not just a novelty service. And uh, in fact, something of the best expression of the best aspect of the internet. Who knew? And this has led to much mourning on the internet. To discuss Vine, we are joined by Will Oremus, who is, uh, of course, Slate's tech columnist. Will, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um, great to have you. In order to get at what the loss of this means, why don't we um, why don't we start by asking what did the creators of Vine expect from this really kind of modest contribution to the um, platforming out of the internet, um, and what did it um, somewhat unexpectedly become? So when Vine was created as a startup, the idea was that it would be 
these quick six-second videos that you would just sort of casually share with other people, which is in fact what Snapchat became instead. Vine did not really become that. When Vine was bought by Twitter in 2012, uh, it was bought for $30 million, Twitter saw it as the analog to a tweet, the video analog to a text tweet. Uh, And in fact, the constraint of those six seconds really from the beginning inspired creativity. People, Creative people took it as a challenge. What can I accomplish in six seconds with the ability to jump cut uh, and, and to shoot a video just on my phone? And what happened was that Vine became this, this venue for these really creative, often hilarious videos. Uh, a lot of times people would play with the juxtaposition between the video and the sound because it's sort of like, it's sort of like a long gif um, that that has sound, and that's the big differentiator from a GIF. And so people would do these videos of like uh, a dog seeming to dance or a robot seeming to dance, and then they would match it with music. So there was this one of this really creepy uh, robot called Big Dog dancing back and forth, and somebody put in Toto's Africa as the soundtrack to it and matched up the the timing of the dancing perfectly to the music. <laughs> Oh, I love the real dog coming in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could watch that a few hundred times. Yeah. Uh, this was one of the many viral vines um, that, that uh, over the years has, has made an impact way beyond the people who use the app because you can see it on Twitter, you can see it on the web. So it, it really became a place for creative expression rather than this social sharing app that was originally envisioned. Vines were often weird. They were somehow uh, strange or creepy or unexpected, and that was part of what people loved about them. Given that Twitter is struggling itself as a business model right now, what was the point of, of selling Vine? Was it simply a, a money-saving measure, or is there is there some idea that somebody else owns this 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 video area now and that there's nothing Twitter can do about it? Yeah, well, it's in fact even worse than that. Twitter Twitter tried to sell Vine and could not find a buyer. So it's just shutting it down. It's shutting down the mobile app. Fortunately, the videos will live on on the web, Twitter says. Um, I'm sure there will be people who are rushing to archive them somehow for posterity. Um, but Vine had uh, had really nosedived in pos- popularity in the last couple of years. It probably peaked in around the summer of 2014. And since then, uh, a lot of the people who had gotten sort of internet famous by making Vine videos had jumped ship. They had moved to competing services that were that simply were bigger and offered a bigger audience. So you had uh, Instagram started offering 10-second videos. Sorry, Instagram had 15-second videos. Snapchat has 10-second videos and, and started allowing people to broadcast them publicly. Those two in particular really ate into Vine's market share. Uh, and then there, there are Facebook uh, video people and YouTube video people and the Vine, the stars of Vine, which, which were, <laughs> is a real thing. Um, they mostly uh, had abandoned it over the past year or so for these other services where they could actually make more money and find a bigger audience. So as to why that happened, I think it is related to Twitter's problems as a business. Twitter just has had this revolving door at the top. Um, It has not been able to consistently monetize its products, including its own core product. Um, And with Vine in particular, it brought it in and it, it made it sort of a big hit. But then it was just sort of, by all accounts, it was just sort of left to 
languished. There was a small team in New York City all the way across the country from Twitter headquarters in San Francisco that was working on Vine. It didn't seem to be one of Twitter's core priorities. Twitter has been scrambling so hard to try to grow its user base and to meet all these expectations of its investors. And it really seems like Vine just you didn't never topped the priority list for Twitter and, and it got surpassed by these other services. Right. It's almost as if the limitations that made it so appealing to its to its core group of users were were what shut everybody else out. Right. It became this little niche thing that a few people loved very strongly, but but that that had no that had no kind of horizontal place to go. Yeah. And in that way, it really is analogous to Twitter because Twitter is Twitter itself is a service where the people who use it, a lot of them absolutely love it. I mean, they live on Twitter all day and journalists are among them. Celebrities are among them, um, comedians, some other people, but Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump is among them. Uh, and, uh, and, and Twitter has just really struggled to, uh, be able to take that sort of th- that loyalty and that love that its core users have and translate that into the kind of financial results that a much bigger platform like Facebook has been able to show consistently year after year. Um, and, you know, I think part of the issue may be the publicness. You know, if you want to broadcast your thoughts, Twitter's the place to do it. If you want to make a video that you think is really cool and that you want everybody to see, Vine at its peak was a good place to do that. But if you just want to casually share something with your friends, which is a use case that I think for most people is much more common than wanting to to broadcast something to the world, then uh, Twitter's a scary place to do that because uh, strangers could come in and rip you to shreds or your tweet could end up on some website making fun of you uh, or just nobody could see it at all because your friends aren't on there. And I think the, sa- the same was true of Vine. It felt like it's, it was such a challenge that creative people were excited by it. But the average person who just wants to share where they are or what they're doing at the moment, Snapchat with with the videos that disappear and that don't live on the internet for everybody to see forever was a much a much more comfortable place to do that. And so I think this this whole idea of publicness has been one of the biggest problems for Twitter and, and I think it was to some extent for Vine as well. Will it is this it would it be overstretching the argument to say that this is a kind of uh inverse proportionality between what's spontaneous, organic, interesting, and intrinsically wonderful about the internet and the ability uh, to monetize it? It's a good question. I mean, it does It does often seem like the most beloved services are not the ones that that achieve that huge, ubiquitous scale like Facebook. I mean, who who says, God, I love Facebook? You never, <laughs> right? You never hear, so, oh, Facebook is my favorite app. No. With a we, big cup of Starbucks and Facebook is all I need. <laughs> right. Uh, I think, so I think, you know, it's, it's probably, maybe it's overstretching it a bit, Stephen, but I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's crazy to say that there is some, some inverse relationship there between how beloved something is and, and the kind of massive scale and revenue that it can achieve. One other thing that I think is worth, is really worth pointing out about about Vine is that it had become in particular a a home for creative people of color and for in particular for black people had really uh, adopted Vine and made Vine their own. And uh, you heard from from Twitter when when Vine, when it was announced that Vine would be folded, you heard just a a lot of, of sadness and grief and a feeling of loss, especially from black Vine users who felt like, you know, this was this was really a community that they had that they had built. Um, it felt it felt like a, a home for them online. 
Um, and you know, not just in terms of the the funny videos and the and the creative stuff that that comedians and and the Vine stars had done, but also when you look back to Ferguson and the protests there, we did not yet have Periscope, we didn't have Facebook Live, and so Vine was really the 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 central way that people shared videos from Ferguson. Um, so it, it's cultural impact, as with Twitter, its cultural impact really outstripped um, its its business impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this and this raises uh, the question of Twitter. Then, I mean, Twitter is its its cultural penetration, as it were, is far deeper and broader than Vine could have ever hoped to have achieved. It's absolutely integrated into many journalists' way of uh, looking at the world and promoting their work and existence within the world. And yet, Twitter can't make enough money to please Wall Street. So obviously. Um, this raises the, the the perennial question of Twitter. Yeah, and and it's it's a good time to talk about Twitter because Twitter itself explored the idea of a sale, and there were several companies that were clearly interested. You had uh, Microsoft, you had Alphabet, which owns Google, you had um, Salesforce, which was sort of an unexpected name. And then you had Disney, which was a really intriguing name. Disney has invested heavily in Vice. It's interested in new media. It's a media company, which seemed to align with what a lot of people think Twitter is or should be. Um, So you had at least four companies that were interested. And eventually, they all backed out of buying Twitter. And at least two of the companies, Salesforce and Disney, um, sources told tech reporters that the reason they backed out was at least partly because of the trolls. And by the trolls, we mean it's sort of a broad group, but it's it's the people on Twitter who uh, sort of spew racist or, or sexist stuff. It's the spam accounts. It's the porn bots. It's just all the, all the crap that clutters up Twitter kind of the way that MySpace used to be cluttered up right around the time that Facebook surpassed it. Um, and and Disney did not Disney understandably did not want to be taking over a service that has become really the the service of choice for anti semites and for uh, um, you know anyone who wants to harass and abuse people online and you know maybe it will just keep taking hits on Wall Street until finally its valuation is reasonable until finally finally its valuation is in line with a a niche service that is used by tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, but will probably never be used by billions of people. Let's end by saying something respectfully eulogistic about Vine. What do you what do you think in the wake of its demise? I think the the coolest thing about Vine to me is that these these Vine stars just came out of the woodwork. I mean these were people these were almost uniformly people that nobody knew or had heard of. They were people shooting videos uh, in their bedrooms, uh, in their basements um at their at their desks you know secretly when their boss wasn't looking and they took the the constraints of this form the 6 seconds and the fact that you have to shoot it on your phone and you can make a couple of jump cuts and they made beautiful hilarious ridiculous works of art uh, and that's that's just inspiring and they gained they gained hundreds of thousands of followers tens of millions of people uh, looped their vines uh, and those will live on, fortunately. Our engagement editor, Chelsea Hassler, compiled some of the best vines, and I contributed a few to those. So so I think, you know, it's, it's, a, happy, it's a happy story that Vine existed, even though it's a sad story that it's gone. 
let's throw this one out to the listeners. Um, we'd love to know what your experience with Vine was. Explain it to us, what you loved about it, and uh, post what you did with it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Will, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a total delight. Thanks for having me. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dane. Okay, well, for a couple of reasons, I'm going to endorse a short, funny video this week, in part because we talked about Vine. This is not a Vine video I'm going to endorse. It's a little bit longer, just slightly over a minute. But since we were talking about the power of short homemade videos to, to change the world, and also just because this is such a heavy time, the election is only a week away, every day is fraught with high stakes horror about the future and what's happening to our country. So I'm just going to endorse something goofy and delightful that makes you proud to be an American. It's a one minute and 11 second video that was posted to to Twitter a few weeks ago by a user named Young J Music. And uh, the only description he gives is, is that I'll read I'll read the tweet to you. My little cousin decided to try on his Halloween costume today. And dot dot dot. I'm gonna just leave this here. And so then he shows this video of this. All I'll tell you is that a young boy dressed as a marshmallow then hoverboards into view and what unfolds after that you'll just have to look at it to discover we'll post the video to our show page will what do you got i'm gonna endorse major league baseball's world series which has been going on for the past week we're recording this before game six which happens on tuesday night so we don't know if it will be over by the time people listen to this if cleveland wins tonight it will be over Either way, we have the Chicago Cubs, who have not won the World Series since 1908, the Cleveland Indians, who have not won since 1948. So somebody is going to be breaking a ridiculously long drought. The baseball has been fantastic. Both managers are of the new school, where they're willing to try things differently. Each team has one of the best relief pitchers ever to play the game. Cleveland has Andrew Miller. Chicago has Araldus Chapman, who throws the ball over 100 miles per hour every time he throws a fastball. And they use them in unorthodox ways. They'll bring them in uh, sort of in the middle of the game rather than at the very end of the game. They're letting the best players push their push themselves to their absolute limits of endurance. It has been wonderful baseball. There have been great moments. Uh, Bill Murray sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game with a Daffy Duck voice. Uh, it's it's just it's great baseball. It's great TV. And uh, I'm, I'm, I feel fortunate that we have gotten to see these two teams playing again and again. Yeah, here, here. I, I completely with you on this one, Will. Um, it's been it's been a pretty drama filled. I mean, it's so inherently drama filled with these two teams, but it's lived up to it. I really hope Chicago pushes it to Game Seven. Uh, and what did you make of Eddie Vedder? I actually did not hear Eddie Vedder sing. I was watching the game while doing the dishes. I I couldn't hear the sound. I gather that people loved it. He did dedicate the the seventh inning stretch to the Cubs catcher, David Ross, who's just this kind of the perfect World Series hero, this 39-year-old catcher, more than a decade past his prime, but he's he's scrappy. He catches one of the most difficult pitchers to catch, the Cubs' John Lester. He had made some crazy and amazing plays early in the game, and before Eddie Vedder sang Take Me Out to the Ball Game, he praised Ross as just a genuine, down-to-earth, nice guy. I thought that was, mm. a, that was a pretty cool way to, to dedicate the, the seventh-inning stretch if you're a, a rock star. I didn't watch it. (laughs) I didn't see that. I just kept seeing things on my Twitter feed of heterosexual men saying that they want their, 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 uh, you know, marital exemption to switch to Eddie Vedder. I mean, he seems to be making a lot of people swoon. I love the fact that as good as the baseball games have been, the seventh inning stretch has been just as entertaining. Hmm. 
absolutely. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to endorse um, an essay that originally appeared in the wonderful um, magazine, internet magazine, Aeon, uh, out of Australia. It's gone global. It's a wonderful uh, find, and its um, uh, archives are well worth browsing through. But they um, they they actually co-published something with the Atlantic Monthly by a Scottish academic named David Farrier. Um, it is a beautifully written, very short essay about the concept of deep time. And uh, I guess, essentially, as modern the science of modern geology developed, people started to get a more precise sense of exactly how many eons the Earth had been in existence prior to humanity. And deep time is basically the concept of pre-Anthropocene time and just how vastly much of it there was and sort of philosophically how vastly much of it there needed to be in order to produce humanity and human consciousness and the sublimity of trying to take into the limited window of human consciousness something as completely immense and yet constitutive of us as deep time. It's wonderful how quickly he gets that on the page. But then he starts talking about um, that that's the deep past. And he makes this wonderful and quite poetically delivered point about the deep future and what precisely we might be living to it. I mean, just to give one example that he gives, we slaughter tens of millions of chickens every year in, across the globe. And so were some future civilization to try to pick through the earth to try to figure out what was here first, they would conclude that chickens had covered the entire face of the earth on the sheer number of fossils and bones left behind. But let me just give you one sentence to give you uh, a sense of how beautiful the writing is. The irony of the Anthropocene is that we are conjuring ourselves as ghosts that will haunt the very deep future. And it's kind of a shivery and sublime set of thoughts uh, delivered quite well and succinctly by David Ferrer. And the second thing I'd like to um, endorse is democracy. And, um, you know, many people died for the right to vote, um, for our right, for my right to vote. Um, And I I, I think this is the year maybe to exercise it at all costs and in favor of the candidate that you deem most likely to defend the bedrock principles of this country, including the right to vote. Um, I think it's obvious who that is. Uh, I hope it's obvious to every listener of this show who that is. And um, it's that rare moment when in in the palms of all of our individual hands lies um, this heritage, which is um, of radical self-governance, which is the gift that this country gave the world. Um, don't trash it, um, honor it, and go vote. All right. Thank you very much. Um, Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Will. Um, thank you guys so much. It was fun as always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our interns are Lizzie Fison and Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. He is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Hail to the chief. The Culture Gap is part of that network. You can check out an entire roster of really excellent and like-minded shows at itunes.com. Slash Panoply, our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Will Aremus, Aisha Harris, Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope we'll see you next week. <laughs> the world doesn't end. <laughs> we'll see you next week.